All right, friends. Uh, come on back. Come gather back from the break. Come on in, have a seat, wrap up your conversations, your cups of coffee. We're going to come back together to continue our time of worship. If you're not listening to me and continuing your conversation like you're pretending not to hear me, I, I see you. I see you. I hear you. I'm going to start calling people out by name in a minute who are not coming back to their seats. Joel Beachy. Brendan Jorgensen. These are people that aren't listening to me right now. They're just... I'm not going to do it as we get into the sermon because there'll probably be people that might not listen. I'm not going to call you out during the sermon. But come on again. Have a seat. Uh, welcome to the third or fourth Sunday of Advent, depending on how you're counting. This is our fourth Sunday of Advent. We're glad to be here. Uh, my name is Bjorn Anderson. My family and I, we, um, we, we get the privilege of being members here. We love being members here at this church. Uh, a lot of us were at the members meeting last Sunday, and it was really encouraging to hear all the things that God has done in 2023. And looking ahead to 2024, it feels like the Lord has great things for Be Free, so I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning and continuing on our teaching series. Um, we're a week out from Christmas, December. It is an exciting time of year, a lot of reasons to be excited. But one of the things that everybody waits for with breathless anticipation in December is that a few prominent dictionaries unveil their word of the year. And uh, we've been talking about that in the Anderson household. Past words of the year in the last 25 years in 2020, the word of the year was COVID. Perhaps you heard of it. Uh, somewhere in the mid-20, uh, another past word of the year was dumpster fire, which is actually two words. Um, in 2008, the word of the year was subprime, as we went through like an economic crisis. In 2005, the word of the year was truthiness, which is like a thinly veiled version of truth. Uh, in 1995, the word of the year was World Wide Web. Again, three words, uh, not one. And then in 1992, the first word of the year I could find the word was not exclamation point, like a great reference to Saturday Night Live. Uh, if, you, if you're of that uh, generation. So those were some past words of the year. Does anyone know what the word of the year is for 2023? Yes. yes. Are you saying yes, you know the word of the year, or the word of the year is yes? Yes, yes was the guess. Okay, great. Yes was not the word of the year, so <laughs> no, actually. The word of the year, Owen Sessler was riz, R-I-Z-Z, -Z. okay, riz. It is a derivative of the word charisma. It's a slang word for style, charm, or attractiveness, or the ability to attract a romantic partner. So if you find a strapping young lad, maybe like Owen Sessler perhaps, and he's <laughs> talking to some young ladies, you might be like, oh, he's got that riz, you know what I'm saying? Or, um, back in like 01, when I rolled into Young Life Training and met Abby, you might be like, oh, Bjorn really rizzed up Abby, you know what I'm saying? So um, that is the word of the year, and now that it is the word of the year, it is absolutely no longer cool with anyone under 40, okay? So, but that is the word of the year by the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm sure that's everyone's dictionary of choice in here, but there is a competing word of the year from Merriam-Webster, okay? 
Yes, the great dictionary battle, and Merriam-Webster's word of the year is authentic. Authentic. Less funny or exciting than Riz, but authentic means uh, not false or imitated. So that's like the negative side of authentic. It's not false or, or, or imitated. Or it could mean true to one's own personality or character. True to one's own personality or character. Interestingly, a lot, like more people were apparently talking about what it means to be authentic. And even as our culture sort of used to have like, we looked to God as the highest portion, like now we sort of look to ourselves as the most important thing. So like if we're being an authentic self is very important in our world. And uh, there's a lot of talk about authenticity in like with AI, like is that AI generated content or is it authentic? There's a celebrity culture going on where people are um, trying to live authentic lives sort of in a very public space. I was listening to a podcast about this word of the year. So I'm a white guy in my 40s, so that's what I do, listen to podcasts. And they were talking about the word authentic. And this one host really thought it was a great word, and this other host thought it was didn't appreciate the word and was mentioning that the two celebrities in Merriam-Webster's article talking about why they chose authentic, the two people they mentioned as examples of authenticity were Elon Musk and Taylor Swift. Because these are folks who Taylor Swift really, there's an authentic connection between her and her fans. And people really feel that. And then Elon Musk, he's just authentic. He says, he says it like it is. But the host was trying to draw the point like these two people, their actual end goal is to make money so how authentic could they actually be? And so it's sort of just an interesting point um, about the word authentic. We'll return to authentic in a minute. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But we're in the middle of our um, celebration of Advent, commemoration of Advent as a church, um, which we've been walking through all December. Advent is the Latin word for coming, means coming in Latin. Uh, so it's like a period where we remember when people waited for the coming of the Messiah. And we look back and remember the longing of the people of Israel. We'll actually talk a lot about the people of Israel. It's much of the Old Testament is about that, the history of those people and how it relates to us today. And they longed for the Messiah to come for hundreds of years. And then it, Jesus came as a baby but in Advent, we remember that, and then we look ahead to his second coming, as we sang about a lot, as we read scripture about. Luke and the team led us so well in that this morning. Uh, so in, in Advent, this year at Be Free, we've been looking at prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And we have this great verse on the chalkboard about um, being fulfilled in, in Christ. So today we're going to look at two prophecies that were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus in the midst of great sorrow and suffering. And I think as we look at the fulfillment of this prophecy today, we'll see that the Bible is an authentic record that paints an authentic picture of both the darkness of our world and also the goodness of Jesus coming. So the scripture we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to open that up. Um, we're going to look specifically at Matthew 2, 13 to 18, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. It's a longer chunk of scripture that I'll read in a minute. Um, but it starts with the story of when the wise men or magi came to visit Jesus, which Brendan preached through this about two weeks ago, talking about how um, there was a fulfillment of the prophecy um, of 
what, what prophecy was? Oh, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. That prophecy was fulfilled. So he mentioned that in this prophecy that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. So that's sort of the context. And then in 13 and 18 is where we're going to see the meat of what we're going to talk about today. So um, why don't you stand with me as I read? Um, and if you have a Bible or cellular device and want to follow along, Matthew 2, 1 through 18, it's in the ESV translation. I'm going to read it. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. And after I'm done, I'll say the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. So Matthew 2, 1 through 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they, the wise men, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. This is the text we're going to really lean into today. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was, what, then was fulfilled what the, was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, that in a world that longs for authenticity, that you are the authentic one who was before all things, that in you all things hold together, and you came in the most authentic way possible as a human baby born into vulnerability and violence and pain to bear our pain and redeem us from it. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this text, that we would see more of who you are and it would cause us to live lives that reflect your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're going to spend the bulk of our time, we're going to talk about the about three main characters in this text, verses 13 through 18. You can just leave your Bibles open or phones open if you're, if you're looking at that. But I want to make a few observations before we talk about these three characters. A first observation is that this is a challenging and disturbing portion of Scripture. Uh, it's one place among many where the biblical narrative doesn't hide the violence and darkness of the human heart. Uh, especially a heart that is rebelling against God. We're really familiar, may, maybe, if you've been around church with the wise men. They're always in manger scenes. Um, they're very popular, and it's beautiful. And we see God using his creation, the star, and then his scriptures through the prophecy to draw people who would be considered, considered outsiders to himself. And it's, it's really a neat depiction, but we're maybe less familiar with the gruesome massacre of young children that follows the visit of the wise men to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town. Um, the number of male children under two killed by Herod as he's threatened was, historians think, between 10 and 30 children, maybe about a dozen children. So it's not an act of genocide, but it is an act of almost intimate tragedy as People would have known each other. It would have been a community where people knew each other and these, these children are killed. It's a hard and challenging portion of scripture. It shows there's a spiritual battle at play, even in this Christmas story. Um, second observation worth noting on a little bit of a different tack is that there's a lot of different geographic places mentioned in what we just read, which points to the historicity. This is not a mythical account. But Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Her, uh, the Magi come from the east, which is, it's a little vague. Some people think they might have come from like Persia, which is modern day Iran, or maybe further away like China or Asia. Uh, Jesus and his family escaped to Egypt. Herod lives in Jerusalem. There's all these places mentioned that are far from where we live right now. We think of um, our life in Christ through an American context, as we, we should, we, we live here, but the reality is we see God calling all nations to himself. We see it in this text, um, and it's, a, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful reminder, and the scriptures echo that. Psalm 67, 4, let's put it up on the screen, says this, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you, God, judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. God says, let the nations sing, I'm for all nations. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, Luke read a portion of the beginning of Revelation 21, but at the end of Revelation 21, we read about the new heavens and new earth, and we read about nations coming to God's city, and it says this, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. That's beautiful. It's cool. And in some ways, the wise men coming and bringing gifts to Jesus are like foreshadowing that at the end of the world, all the nations, the kings will bow down to Jesus and bring things to him that God desires the nations to come to him. And we see it happening in Matthew 2. Last observation, there's two Old Testament scriptures fulfilled in this text that we just read. Um, the first comes from Hosea 11.1, 1, which says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This comes from Hosea 11.1. 1. Hosea, 
is a prophet and a book. He wrote a book of the Bible, really interesting and colorful book. Hosea gets like a tough assignment from the Lord. Marry a prostitute, an active prostitute. The prostitute's name is Gomer. Tough assignment for Hosea, tough name for his wife. He's called to marry her, and she is repeatedly unfaithful to him, and God is saying, continue to pursue her and love her. And Gomer, his wife, is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness and sort of our unfaithfulness and how God continues to pursue us. And one of the ways that God pursued Israel is he helps them escape from Egypt through the Red Sea, Moses, Prince of Egypt. It's like the 25-year anniversary. Great movie to watch with your family over Christmas. But that's what happens. And it's like one of the ways God pursued Egypt is he, or Israel is he brings them out of Egypt. So Hosea is saying, I called, Egypt, I called my son Israel out of Egypt. And Matthew reinterprets that to, to, to apply that to Jesus, that Jesus went to Egypt to flee Herod and, and was called out of there. So that, that prophecy is, is um, fulfilled. The second prophecy is around the death of the children, and it's in Jeremiah 31, 15, which says this, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah was another prophet who wrote a book of the Bible, wrote a text in the scriptures, and he talks about the tears of Rachel Rachel was one of the matriarchs of Israel. She was married to Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson. Um, sometimes I get confused thinking through the history of Israel, and if you're like don't know any of these names, like that's totally fine. Like it's 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 in the Bible, and it is. But it's just trying to draw it back in. Like if you've never seen like Star Wars, and you're like, who's this person and that person? Like, and some people are just sort of talking about them like they know them all. Like that's. But the Bible draws all these threads together, and. Israel, hundreds of years after Rachel is alive and hundreds of years after they come out of Egypt, gets taken into Babylonian captivity. And it says, Jeremiah writes at that time that Rachel is metaphorically weeping for Israel because they're in captivity. Rachel is long dead. It's a metaphor for her weeping. Like in America, we might say if something bad happens in our country, we might say Abraham Lincoln or George Washington are crying tears over the state of America. They're not, it's a metaphor like that. And so it's the same thing here that Rachel is, as one of the matriarchs, is sad for what's happening. And Matthew applies it, reinterprets it to when these children are killed and says, Rachel weeps. And in it, I think he's saying something beautiful. He's not trying to explain away a horrific event or saying God has a plan. God does have a plan. Or it's not so bad. He's just saying Rachel weeps too. I weep with you too. So those, those are the prophecies fulfilled. And what I want to do is in the fulfillment of these prophecies, I want to look at three of the main like, characters, people that interact with these prophecies. Joseph, Herod, and Jesus. Okay, so we'll start with Joseph. Okay? Joseph is the earthly father of Jesus. Um, through a divine adoption, he's entrusted with raising Jesus. The long-awaited Messiah... God is saying, I'm coming to redeem my people in the flesh. Hey, Joseph, you raised the kid. No pressure, no problem, okay? And Joseph gets thrown into some rough and crazy circumstances. Matthew 2, 13 and 14. 
Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Joseph, this is the second dream he's had in the first two chapters of Matthew. If I'm Joseph, I'm like, I don't want to have any more dreams. Okay, first thing, he's engaged to Mary. She's pregnant. Joseph knows he did not get her pregnant. Oh, it's a virgin birth, says Mary to Joseph. Joseph is like, Okay, but he's a nice guy, so he's going to divorce her quietly. Angel shows up. No, Mary is right. This, is, this child is from the Holy Spirit. Mary is having a, a, a baby, and you're gonna, you need to marry her. Okay. Then the wise men come. They give gifts. Oh, this is pretty cool. I like being Joseph. Wait, another dream. Hey, the most powerful person in the world is coming to kill that child. You need to be a political refugee to a country you're not from. Um, Joseph is caught up in some crazy circumstances. You ever see, I don't know if a movie like this exists, but I feel like there's a common thing in like action movies where there's some like random person like minding their own business and then they have to like save the world. Where it's like, you know, like Bob Brobach was just out at IHOP with his family for dinner, but little did he know that aliens were going to invade that night and he had to like kill aliens and make a peace treaty and save the world. It's just like a random guy. And Joseph is just like a random guy. Like, I'm going to marry this person, Mary. And suddenly it's like, your wife is going to have a, a virgin birth and it's going to be God in the flesh. And then you got to escape Herod to Egypt. But Joseph's obedience is immediate. It's really impressive. Joseph immediately obeys. After his first dream in Matthew 1.24, it says this, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary home to be in his wife. In Matthew 2, when he has the dream, hey, Herod's coming to destroy Jesus. You need to get up and leave and go to another country. He does it immediately. His obedience is immediate. It's also worth noting that there, Joseph never speaks in the biblical text. There's no recorded words that he says. He's like a passive actor. Never, never says anything. And he sort of lets his actions speak, his obedience speak. Obedience isn't really a popular word in our society, um, but it's something Joseph beautifully models. And Jesus himself says, those who love me will obey my commands. I, 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 this, I wonder if he was thinking of Joseph. I don't, we wouldn't know that. But like, it's very interesting to think we don't read anything more about Joseph after this text. A lot of historians think he died early. Um, very interesting character. So he's, but he's a beautiful example of someone who follows God's obedience, God's lead. Herod is the other side of the coin. A few interesting facts about Herod. He was the king of Judea, which is a portion of modern-day Israel and included the city of Jerusalem, which is the religious and historical centerpiece of Israel. Very important like area that Herod controlled. Herod was also what was known as a client king, meaning he was technically the king of Judea, but he really, who ruled Judea, was Rome. 
he was like a client or actually in service to, to Rome, and people think he got his position because he was, um, had a really good relationship with, with Julius Caesar. Herod completed some very successful building projects, including rebuilding the temple, the temple that Jesus went to, the temple that we read about, and the, uh, the ter- Herod was part of rebuilding that. He, rebuilt, he built some water systems. He built some famous fortresses. There's a very famous fortress in Israeli history called Masada, where there was like an Alamo-like battle in the history of Israel later after Jesus died. Herod built that. Um, he was raised as a Jew. He was given the title King of Judea or maybe King of the Jews. Some people called him that, maybe, interestingly enough. That's what Jesus was called. So it's, it could be easy to read this account and see the wickedness of Herod, um, which is really obvious in this horrible slaughter. But I think Herod is maybe a lot of things we might actually look for in a leader. He made good deals. He was strategic. He was ambitious. He got things done, maybe even under the guise of getting things done for God. But notice his reaction When the Magi come looking for Jesus, Matthew 2, 1 through 3, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is troubled by the fact that there might be another king in town. Makes some, makes some sense. Herod's the king. There can't be another king. He's threatened. He's troubled. Historically, Herod was known to be a person of root, ruthless person. One historian mentioned it was, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons because there was legend that he killed people in his own family for his own power. He doesn't want another king on the throne. The end result is he ends up killing innocent children. And if Joseph is a picture of a heart devoted to God, Herod is a picture of a heart rebelling against God. And Herod takes rebellion to extreme length, but I don't know that he's that much different than you or me. See, Jesus is our creator and redeemer, and he wants to be the king of our lives, not just a buddy or a counselor or a friend, although he is those things. He wants to be the king of our lives. We sang at the end, he shall reign forevermore. One commentator, I I read a commentary this week, I read this great quote that I wanted to pull out and show you guys. It's kind of cool. It says this, Herod teaches that a reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. Jesus is Lord and we are not. So in some ways, Herod is a picture of sin, the human condition of worshiping ourselves instead of God. I heard it said um, years ago that there's like a metaphorical throne in the heart of every human being. It's like we're created with a throne in our heart, and Jesus, as we follow him, longs to be on that throne. And being a Christ follower means Jesus putting Jesus on the throne of your life. And when we keep ourselves on the throne, instead of God, it, the end result is destruction for us and others. This is taken to a violent extreme in the life of Herod, but it's worth reflecting on the posture of our own hearts. The last person we'll consider here is Jesus. Similar to Joseph, Jesus is also a passive actor in this story. He's a helpless infant. God in the flesh 
chose to come the way all of us did as a helpless baby, and he chose to be born into like a really, really tumultuous set of circumstances. And I think he serves as sort of a contrast to how we look at power in our world. Worldly power and influence. Jesus is the opposite. He's a helpless baby. He's born into circumstances. He has to like depend on Joseph and Mary to take him away from a more powerful person that wants to kill him. Jesus, although he's passive and doesn't say anything in this story, um, he doesn't remain passive. And at the end of his life, when he stands before another political ruler, he has some very interesting things to say about his kingdom and his kingship. In John 18, 36 through 37, we see this interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. They're talking, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Really interesting lot we could say there. Mysterious words from Jesus and Pilate. What is truth? Very interesting question. But real, all, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That is an obvious statement of what Jesus is making here. And he's bringing... He, but he also talks about how he is bringing the kingdom to earth. So it has to look different than what we think of as an earthly kingdom. He doesn't bring his kingdom through force. He brings it through love. It's also worth noting that Jesus' journey in this story mirrors the um, historical journey of the people of Israel. Okay, we, We've talked about Israel a bunch. Way before Jesus was born, Israel, the nation of Israel, fled to Egypt during a time of crisis. There was a famine going on, and Jacob and his sons fled to Egypt during the time of Joseph, okay? Israel fled to Egypt to escape a time of crisis. Jesus, as he is born, he flees to Egypt to escape a time of crisis. Israel leaves Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus himself goes through the water of baptism. We talked about this last week. Uh, Sam preached on baptism, how Jesus was baptized to identify with us. Israel escapes to Egypt. Jesus escapes to Egypt. Israel comes out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus comes through the waters of baptism. Then Israel wanders in the desert for a while, and they end up worshiping idols and kind of failing. Jesus himself goes into the desert and is tempted by Satan. But he passes the temptation. He lives in perfect obedience. See, Israel was chosen by God, not because they were so great, it's very clear on that, but because they, God chose them, he loved them. And they were supposed to be a vessel of his salvation to the nations, but they failed over and over again. And where they failed, Jesus came. And he was the ultimate vessel of salvation to the nations. The book of Romans describes Jesus as like the new and better Adam. We sometimes sing about this. Um, like Adam was the first human and he failed, he sinned. Jesus is the new human in his place. And in some ways, Jesus is also the new and better Israel. He's the one who did what Israel could not do and ultimately reconnect us to God. All right, 
So, so we looked at Joseph and Herod and Jesus, but we should ask, but, but so what? So what? What does this mean to us? We're a week before Christmas. I'm maybe listening to a little bit of what you're saying, Bjorn, but I got a lot of gifts to get. I got a lot to do. So what does this have to do with anything in our lives? I want to just give you two thoughts that could actually apply to your life. The first is around suffering. Um, I think this passage is about extreme suffering. The, these, there are, were actual people that had their two-year-old children murdered pointlessly or in, in a really hard situation. And that might be harder for us to identify with. Um, much of the Christian church throughout history strongly identifies with this passage because they live in times of great suffering and violence. Much of our, our brothers and sisters around the world still face a lot of violence. And they really identify with this passage. We might want to like explain away or whitewash the passage, but we should remember that Rachel, echoing God's tears, weeps with those who weep. So let's remember and pray for brothers and sisters around the world who are following Christ in hard places. And we also are going to face suffering ourselves. We're, we, many of you are walking through suffering right now. Something unexpected, something you weren't hoping to face that may not be as extreme as this, but is hard. And we should realize that God, through Jesus, is in the business of redeeming suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul tells us this. For our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In Advent, we celebrate as we sang over and over this morning that Jesus will come back and put everything to right and will redeem suffering. A few years ago, um, Nick sent out a, a blog post that was helping him frame the way he thought about uh, how we were going to worship as a church during the season of Advent. And in this blog post, there's this awesome quote that I love. I love to come back to it every Advent, and it says this. In Advent, believers confess that the infant who drew his first ragged breath between a virgin's knees has yet to speak his final word. Jesus will come and redeem all suffering. He has yet to speak his final word over the suffering in this world, over the suffering in our lives, even the suffering of these parents who lost their children, right? Um, it's mysterious, but we believe that Jesus is coming back to redeem and heal all suffering. Second application is this. Who, who's the authentic you? Who are you? We talked about three people. We talked about Joseph. We talked about Herod. We talked about Jesus. It could be easy to be like, oh, I got it. I need to be like Joseph and not like Herod. If someone tells me to flee to Egypt this week, I'm doing it. I will not kill anyone this week, okay? Like, I don't mean to make light of that, but like, it would be easy. And Joseph is a great model of obedience, and Herod is not a good model of following Jesus, obviously. But if, it's, if we're just saying, if the message of our church is be like Joseph and don't be like Herod, that's not the gospel of Jesus. That's moralism. 
That's just like, hey, be a better person, be more obedient. Really? The reality is in my life, I, I want to be like Joseph. I'm, a, I'm more like Herod. I'm also like Herod. I'm like a little bit of both. I'm, taking, I'm trying to be the king. I'm fighting with Jesus to be the king, but I want to be obedient. And when I stand before God, I will not, not be able to present him with a perfect record of obedience. I couldn't present him with a perfect record of obedience in the last hour of my life. You know who had the perfect record of obedience was Jesus. And he says if we are in him, that we can present to God his record of obedience. That Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is, yes, like try to be like Joseph and be obedient. Do what God says. That's a great practical outflowing of putting Jesus on the center of your heart. And then when you're not, we lean on Jesus anyways. It's got to be Christ in us. Um, we're, I am not a fully authentic person. What you see up here right now, that is like sort of a part of me, but it's not. There's lots of parts of me that I would never want anyone to see. And that's true. I, it's gotta, I hope it's true of all of you. Some of you I know are better people than me. But like, it's like, that's true of all of us. Like, we don't, we try our best to live an authentic life and then things happen because we are still broken by sin. We have an authentic God who authentically came to earth to give us authentic life. That person is Jesus. So let's, Let's be with him. He came to be with us. Let's be with him. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had, or uh, this is a different text, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You, if you're in Christ, you are righteous before God, not because you presented a perfect record of obedience. Jesus came for people like Joseph and people like Herod. And the message of Christmas is that he came to do what you couldn't do for yourself, live a perfect life and redeem you from your sin. So um, it's worth asking, who are you authentically? And I, I feel like the authentic self is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ who is offering us union with him on days we feel like Joseph or days we feel like Herod so you know what maybe you're here and you're suffering a little bit today um, and if that's true like we're going to have people uh, afterwards here at the chalkboard to pray and if you're having a hard time or suffering like that's what this place is for like find someone and tell them Ask someone to get prayer. Within the last year, someone just randomly approached someone in our family and church and just said, like, I just got, like, this is really hard. I just need to tell you what's going on. It was, it was, that, it felt like this is sort of what church is supposed to be about. Um, and maybe you're not in that place but you're in a place where you are thinking like, okay, I want to take a step deeper with Christ, or I want to even know Christ for the first time. 
And this Christmas, like the, the message of Christmas is God authentically came to be with you. Do you want to be with him? So we'll have some prayer. We'll have folks here to pray um, after the service. And, and I hope that um, whatever's going on in your lives this Christmas, that you would realize that Jesus is with us, wants to redeem us, and has yet to speak his final word. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that um, these prophecies, all the way back to Hosea and Jeremiah, were fulfilled in you, Jesus. That you came to a broken world full of violence. You came out of Egypt. You um, weep with those who weep. We don't really understand um, the tragedy that we read about this morning, but we thank you that you are king over the suffering of the world. And we thank you that you have come to give us true and authentic life in yourself. And so in a world that longs for authenticity, we pray that we would be in you and follow you and pursue obedience through you, and when we fail, that we would go back to you, Jesus. Thank you that you came to be with us. I pray we would um, follow you as we go into this week of Advent and Christmas. In the great name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can stand.